Hello. Today I am not on the road, thankfully. Although you probably hear from me when I take a walk. Um, but I have done plenty of driving and got home late last night. On my drive, I offered to tell a story to, to the riders just to help pass the time. It's interesting when you're riding with Amish. Um, you begin to find out how much the only reason we can tolerate our lengthy drives is because we have our radio to distract ourselves. Um, at least that's true for me. But I offered to tell them a story, and, and this is the story I told them. And uh, I just wanted to put it online for you to enjoy today. Enjoy might not be the... Yeah, I, I hope it's enjoyable, but... But I also think it's it has some pretty um, has things to think about. This is the story that I told for my mother's memorial service. It's called "The Guests of Honor." When Abner married Katie, he took her to live as far up in the mountains as it was possible to live. You could survive higher, but only with what you carried along. And as often as Abner could, he would climb the higher reaches. But their farm was the highest up in the mountains of any of his neighbors. And for the most part, he and Katie were self-sufficient, only rarely needing to go down the mountains to get supply. Part of the reason Abner chose to live there was reinforced every time he made a trip down to the town. Journeying to the valley was like taking a trip in a time machine. The mountains were still the domain of horses. But down in the valley, the world was filling with all measure of new contraptions. First, the train came, which connected the far-flung parts of the new nation. Abner accepted as a blessing of sorts and even had taken a trip with Katie. But now there were all sorts of other vehicles scurrying in every direction, as if with the new technology, everyone had been infected with an irrational need to hurry. Cars, Trucks, motorcycles, and tractors all plied an increasing maze of hard-packed roads that covered the old trails. Abner had been tempted for a while by the usefulness of a tractor, but realized it would only make him need to travel to town more often to get fuel, which would probably require a truck. He wondered if the only role of technology was to make you need more. He couldn't imagine the world his son Jack would inherit. But for now, he would live in the time warp the mountains created. The mountains also preserved the quality of the neighborhood. For one thing, the top edge of his property had nothing but mountainous wilderness. But the neighbors further down were all people who daily had the reminder that character was a superior commodity to comfort. Whatever innovations the march of time brought might make character optional but it would never make it obsolete. Abner and Katie discussed it often. They wouldn't fight the changes that were descending upon them, but they would prepare for them by raising their son in an environment requiring strength, determination, and courage, trusting that it would equip him best to meet the onslaught of a world of convenience with its inherent weaknesses. One day, after a long trip to town, Abner met with some of the older residents whose health kept them in the valley, but whose hearts were in the mountains. They had startling news. 
The mountains were going to be made into a national park. Some forward-thinking individuals in our country's distant capital decided that they should protect a region of the mountains from the people who understood it best and make it the property of the national community. They wanted to develop an infrastructure that would allow people from all over the country who had never had a chance to interact with mountains to come and experience firsthand a national treasure. As the men of the mountains discussed the idea, it was clear that their opposition wasn't just a natural dislike of change. They had a clear objection. The new infrastructure that would allow people from all over the country who had never had a chance to interact with mountains to come and experience firsthand how many ways a mountain could kill you. What the people far from the mountains failed to realize is that the mountains taught people character by killing people who didn't have it. The thought of paving a highway up to the heart of the mountains so that people could drive their comfortable new sedan to a fierce and unforgiving land without any cautionary hardship en route seemed foolish. But by the time news had come to their small town, the decisions had for all practice, practical purposes been made. Abner returned to the family with a heavy heart, with concern, and told the family the news. Abner's fears weren't just for the status of his property, but for those who would come to visit. As they talked, it seemed useless to oppose the decision. What would their voice mean even if they could somehow make it heard? People just didn't understand the mountains. Katie trying to console her husband, offered, maybe they will get someone who understands the mountains to run the park. In that moment, Abner realized there was something he could do. Maybe they didn't have enough common sense to realize the implication of what they were doing, but maybe they would recognize common sense when they saw it in person. The next day, Abner journeyed to the town again to get every piece of information on the new project. He focused on names and addresses of people involved in the project. Armed with this list and all of the envelopes in stock at the general store, he returned home. With Katie's help and everyone with Katie's help and Jack licking the envelopes and the stamps, they wrote to everyone they could think of connected to the project including the president, asking for Abner to be made the park ranger. Most of the letters were ignored, but there were enough responses for Abner to get a sense of who would be making the decision about the head of the new park. He redoubled his efforts, writing as often as he had new thoughts about the advisability of having someone who knew the mountains run the park. He encouraged his neighbors who understood his concerns to write also. And finally, he made the trip to Washington, D.C. to knock on doors. After two weeks in the city and hours of waiting, he returned home triumphantly with a new title. He was the new park ranger. The next summer, work began on the park in earnest. The first major obstacle was making a decent road up to the area chosen for the park headquarters. Abner watched as they blasted and bulldozed the path into the mountains. 
and was impressed but apprehensive about the nice, smooth surface they produced. The buildings that made up the headquarters were quickly erected, and it seemed like there was a constant stream of traffic hauling materials and workers into a part of the mountain that previously had only been visited on foot or on horseback. <laughs> Abner, Katie, and Jack moved into the newly built Park Rangers residence and shortly thereafter, with great fanfare, the park was declared open. Many of the politicians and bureaucrats who Abner had met in D.C. were on hand, and when they looked at the surrounding mountains, they realized that Abner maybe wasn't just an amateur politician campaigning for an easy government job. Maybe his fears about the park were well-founded. They all found a news reporter to photograph them shaking Abner's hand while wishing him the best of luck keeping all the visitors safe. It was a challenge. Day after day, Abner watched as families climbed out of their cars wearing clothes that might have been fine on the streets of whatever city they had journeyed from, but which were hardly fit for the trails they hoped to traverse. Others came dressed well enough but clearly the quality of the outdoors clothes did not fit the experience of the wearers. He would meet them as they set out from the parking lot and caution them about the mountain and all of the dangers it held. He would remind them that there were rules and reminders posted throughout the park. Ignoring those rules wouldn't result in a ticket or a fine. Ignoring those rules might cost them broken bones or even their life. Few would have guessed how anxiously this stern and apparently grumpy ranger would await their safe return, counting off every guest until the last adventurer had returned safely for the night. But there were inevitably those who did not return. Sometimes a lone hiker, often a whole party. Abner would wait as long as he dared and then start out in search for the missing guests. He sometimes felt that it was ironic that although he loved the mountains, he seldom got to walk in them during daylight. Now he would travel them at night searching and calling out for the lost. He would search until he found them, and then he would do whatever it took to get them back. Often they were injured, sometimes severely, and at times Abner would carry them home. But no matter how much effort he expended, it paled next to the fear that someday he would come too late, that someday he would lose one of his guests forever. As the park became more popular, it attracted guests from further and further away, more guests who did not understand the dangers hidden in the beauty of the mountain. Abner spent more time searching for and rescuing guests. He knew that his success was one of the things which lured more visitors. Maybe if he lost someone, the news of their death would underline the warning he faithfully delivered to the visitors. But who would he let go? He would never willingly trade the life of a guest for the most compelling warning. Then one day he had an idea. There was one peak, not the highest, but centrally located, whose summit was visible from almost everywhere in the park. 
It would be hidden by terrain at times, but almost anywhere in the park, if you journeyed a mile, you would at some point be in view of the summit. Abner began to dream of posting a light atop the summit, which would guide the lost wanderers back to safety. He had no sooner conceived of the idea when he began to lobby for its implementation. He wrote to his boss and suggested the plan. His supervisor, who had come to trust his ranger, asked him to submit a cost estimate. Abner had climbed up to the summit on several occasions, but as he climbed up it with an eye to establishing a guiding light, he realized it would be difficult at best. Running electric lines to the peak of a mountain would be an enormous job, and getting materials to build a tower to house the light would be almost impossible. The only way to get supplies to the mountain would be to pack them in. No vehicle he had seen in the park's motor pool could make the journey. He wrote to his boss with his findings and wasn't surprised to hear back that there was no funding to attempt such a monumental task. But to Abner, no cost could outweigh the lives it might save. Maybe others could calculate the value of life so coldly, but to him each visitor was a charge committed to him. He began work on the project himself. The tower was not a big problem. Abner built it with trees that grew on the side of the mountain. He dragged the slender trunks up the ascent and lashed them together to make a light tower. Through his contacts in the park system, he was fortunate to meet another ranger who had transferred from the lighthouse service. More and more navigational lights were being electrified and automated, and many lightkeeper jobs were being eliminated. The fellow ranger heard about Abner's project and offered him one of the kerosene lights from a recently electrified lighthouse. It was just what Abner needed. He carefully carried each part of the lamp to the summit and reassembled it. Most of his work had been done during the off-season, but now as the busy summer season began, he was ready with his light. The problem was that Abner could not reach the light to extinguish it each morning or to reignite it each evening, which meant that he had to leave the light burning day and night. At the rate of consumption, this meant that to keep the light burning, he would have to climb to the summit every other day with fuel. Abner willingly added this to his other responsibilities. But it meant that some days he wasn't there to meet visitors and explain the significance of the light and how to use it to find your way home, precisely because he was climbing to the summit with fuel to make sure the beacon would stay lit. Jack, who was growing into a strong boy, saw his father wearing himself out with his trips to the light and his nighttime searches for guests who may have ignored the significance of the light or missed Abner's orientation. He didn't resent the demands placed on his father. Instead, he wanted to take his place at his side, helping to carry the burden that sometimes seemed too much for his father. One day, 
As his father prepared to make the trip, carrying fuel to the summit, Jack came to him dressed in his toughest outdoor clothes and wearing a pair of hand-me-down boots he had from a cousin, which he was likely to grow into within the next few years. Dad, can I come with you to the peak? I could help carry the kerosene. It was one of those moments that test a father. The quickest way to get the job done would be to make the trip himself. Taking Jack would slow him down considerably, and the small amount of kerosene he could carry would not contribute significantly to the effort. On the other hand, if his son aspired to help, he needed to involve him and inspire him. He hoped with all his heart that as Jack grew, he would join him in his vocation to keep the visitors of the park safe. Abner accepted Jack's invitation. The youngster returned home sweaty, scratched, and thoroughly exhausted, but proud of his accomplishment. Every chance he got, he would accompany his father, and soon he could match his father's pace on the trail. And by the next year, with what Jack carried, they could visit the lamp every third day. Abner loved the company on the trips and looked forward to the talks they shared. Then, one night, while Abner was shepherding a party of hikers who had gotten lost and disoriented back to their waiting vehicles, he slipped on the trail and turned his ankle. The painful sprain didn't keep him from walking back, but by the time he sought the refuge of his home, Katie found his ankle swollen and bruised. By the next morning, the ankle looked twice its size and Abner could barely hobble with the aid of a crutch. As he welcomed the visitors, impressed upon them the dangers of the mountain, and painstakingly explained how to use the beacon to find your way back, he realized that by the next night the light would run out of fuel. The injury that would prevent him from going to the aid of lost would prevent him from refilling the light when it was most needed. His only faint hope was that by morning the foot would be healed enough to make the trip. After a night of tossing and turning, brought on by the pain of his foot and the oddity of not having been on the move all day, Abner finally slumbered deeply when it was almost morning. Katie let him sleep, and when he finally awoke, it was three hours past his normal day start. Still early by most people's standard, and in plenty of time to meet the day's visitors, he dressed himself, hobbled to the kitchen, and greeted Katie, struggling not to be cross with her for shutting off the alarm, which he seldom needed but always set. Honey, I really needed to be up and try to figure out how to refuel the light. You needed rest. Come and have some breakfast. You and Jack can eat. I need to get busy. Jack's not here. Where is he? I didn't hear him leave, but when I got up, I caught a glimpse of a small figure up on the ridge. So I checked. His pack is gone. A small ripple of fear passed over Abner. He knew the dangers of the trail to the summit, but it couldn't dim the pride he felt in his son. 
When Jack returned, Abner met him as he hung up his pack. The father was wise enough not to show the boy, shower the boy with praise or gratitude. But he shook his hand and asked, Everything looks shipshape up at the light? Jack nodded proudly. Then let's go meet today's visitors. Jack made the trip every day until Abner's foot fully healed, and even then Abner only accompanied him occasionally. Jack had stepped up into a new level of responsibility, and his father didn't want to take it back. His son needed support and encouragement as a young man, not permission to return to boyhood. The daily trip to the summit had a distinct effect on Jack. The responsibility his father let him keep began to mold his psyche the way that the strenuous effort molded his body. His appetite was impressive, and he slept soundly every night, and he carried himself with new confidence. When he had free time, he began to look for ways to help his father rather than for ways to amuse himself. Seeing his son growing before his very eyes, Abner watched for ways to need him more, which is a flatter-proof compliment. Then one night, two different parties failed to return as expected from their outing in the mountains. Abner hurriedly sought out Katie, and as he explained the situation, she seemed to understand the decision that faced them. As Abner finished, she looked at him and nodded an affirmation of the unasked question. He's ready. Abner found Jack preparing for bed and asked him to get dressed and meet him in his office. When the son arrived, his father was contemplating the map that covered one wall of the office. We've got lost guests, he announced. Two groups. Do you think you can handle a night in the mountains? Jack nodded eagerly. I'd love to come along. I'm afraid you won't be coming along. I need you to cover the northern trails. Up along here, he said, pointing to the map. I'd make sure to check this valley and cover the streams around this area. I noticed they had fly rods with them when they set out. Here's a pack you can use and a dry cell flashlight you can take. The battery won't last if you use it constantly, so you better save it as much as possible for when you find them. You might have injuries to deal with. Jack's eyes were shining as he listened to his father. The trust being showed was far beyond anything he had expected. He continued to nod as he listened to his father and began packing gear into the pack. If you can't bring them back, make them as comfortable as possible and come get me. Hopefully, I'll be back with my group by then. He paused and looked at Jack, held his gaze, and repeated Katie's thought. You're ready. Jack was. He brought home the fishermen that night. One had a broken ankle and the other had fallen to pieces as night and panic had come almost simultaneously. When the young boy stepped out, of the night. The visitors were both amazed and grateful. He kindled a fire more to build their spirits than for heat, and they warmed themselves while Jack sought out a pair of branches which he fashioned into a set of crutches.
By this time, the uninjured fisherman had begun to collect himself enough to recall some training he had received in an early stint as a Boy Scout. And with Jack's help, and with materials from the woods, they fashioned a splint for the ankle. Slowly, Jack led them homeward, until they met Abner coming down the trail to meet them. He said little, but whenever his gaze fell on the small figure leading the cavalcade, he felt an immense pride. And Jack could feel it. He had earned the respect of his father and of the men who he had rescued. He instinctively knew it was the most valuable thing he could earn. From then on, Jack was a part of almost every search, and it seemed that he had a special aptitude for it. Maybe, because of his youth, he could approach the park at the way a newcomer would. While his father saw the park in terms of the map on his wall, Jack could imagine himself walking a trail for the first time and envision the turns that a visitor might be inclined to take. He also continued his commitment to the light, making the journey to the summit as needed to keep the beacon shining brightly. Countless people made their way to safety because of that light. They could always count on navigating by its guidance when they lost their way. But there were also many who, despite the light and the warnings, and often because of carelessness or outright foolhardy decisions, found themselves lost in the mountains, with night at hand and with the diminishing hope of return, when Jack appeared to lead them home. Abner was proud of the record he and his son had compiled. They still had brought everyone back. Some with injuries, even serious ones, but alive. Still, Abner's greatest fear was that someday they would lose their first. When he expressed that fear to his superiors, they assured him that he had no reason to dwell on that. He had done all that could possibly done to keep his visitors safe far more than they had ever expected. And if some day someone ignored his warnings and the light which he provided and went beyond his reach, it was their fault, not his. Abner knew that they were technically right, but this was his park and the guests were his responsibility, and he knew he could never accept a loss so coldly. Neither would his son. Jack had grown into an amazing young man. He knew the mountains better than Abner himself, and he could run them from the heights to the depths all day long, pack on his back, without even showing signs of tiring. As is so often the case, his confidence seemed to complement a deep and sincere humility. Often, as he brought lost guests to safety, they showered him with praise and offered all sorts of rewards, but none of that turned his head in the least. The simple well done he would receive from his father was the only affirmation he seemed to desire. Some of the rescued guests were serious about wanting to display their gratefulness. Some would report their adventures to the local paper in the town in the valley, which would often result in a story. Jack, who never read the paper, might get a clipping, usually from a friend of his mother, but after reading the story, he would usually toss it in the trash, embarrassed by the exaggerations which the story inevitably contained. 
Sometimes a card would come with a gift of money, which Jack didn't need. There was nowhere to spend money on the mountain where he loved to spend his time, and it was a point of honor with Abner to provide Jack everything he needed. The park wouldn't hire him as an employee, but Abner had insisted that any expenses he occurred would come out of the park's budget. The officials back east needed to understand that the, the hundreds of lives saved came at a cost. One day, far in the east, two men who had no official connection to the park or the government were diverting themselves on a long train ride with a conversation. The two strangers had discussed many things when one mentioned how his life had been saved on a trip into the mountains. What a coincidence, the other interrupted. I almost died one night in the National Park, too. That's where I was. Funny thing, it was a boy who saved me. Couldn't have been more than 12 or 13. As they compared stories, it became clear they both had been rescued by Jack. You know, that night I swore I would do something big to express my gratitude. But somehow I never got around to it, admitted one of the men. Same here. I wonder how many others there are, like us, who owe their lives to that kid. It would be kind of interesting to find out. That was the informal beginning of the order. The men found it was easier than expected to find others. It seemed like everyone who had visited the park knew of someone who had been rescued. And most of the recipients of Jack's aid were grateful to have a way to acknowledge the debt of gratitude they owed. The Order of Mountainous Gratitude was formed. They held meetings quarterly, and Jack was always invited. But they were held in distant cities, and the young man didn't want to leave the guests of the park without his watch care. So he never made the trip to attend, despite the offer of prepaid train fare and fully funded accommodation. But, even without his presence, the order grew. Members scoured the local newspaper and contacted individuals whose stories had been featured. They wrote letters to visitors and asked for their recollections of stories. Each clue was followed to its end, and in an effort to locate all of those whose gratitude could be clearly demonstrated by joining this new club. The dues and gifts collected by the Order were used to tell the story of this remarkable young man who ranged the mountains and had been there in the moment of need for so many lost wanderers. They published a book which became quite popular, not only for visitors who had met Jack, but for others who read the stories and were filled with admiration for such a hero. Soon, the leaders of the Order were faced with a clamoring by many who had never even been to the mountains to be allowed to join the society. The leaders accommodated them by creating an auxiliary membership available for those who hadn't been saved personally but still wanted to belong to the order. With these dues, the coffers of the order grew, enabling them to undertake more and more projects to spread the news about Jack and his selfless sacrifice which, in turn, attracted more members, and with them, more dues. The order 
had been growing in that manner for half a decade when one of the founders had an inspiration. Taking the floor at one of the quarterly meetings, he put forward a suggestion. Friends, despite all our efforts to get out the story of Jack, he still has never been able to come to one of these meetings. I think that we ought to sponsor an event right at the park so that Jack can attend and we can personally demonstrate to him the depth of our gratitude. The idea was hailed by all the members and work began immediately on the gala event. A date was set and reservations began pouring in. The, organizer, the organizers had contacted Abner and asked to use the headquarters building for the affair. But they soon contacted him asking if there were any bigger venues available. He offered them the maintenance shed. If they wanted to use it, he could move the park's snow plows and tractors. They accepted and plans moved forward. The small town by the entrance to the park didn't have a catering service, so they hired a service from the nearest city, gladly paying a premium to have someone there to provide gourmet meals. Money was no object. This was a chance for all of those people who had made promises of all sorts while lost in the mountains to make good their oaths. To add to the honor, officials from the Park Service and from state and federal government were invited to attend the event, which by now had received significant publicity. The maintenance shed had been redecorated to rival a big city ballroom, and a stage had been built for the head table. Buses had been engaged to bring people up the mountain since there wasn't space to park all of the vehicles on the grounds. Many people came early so they could enjoy the park in the days prior to the big event. With workers, planners, and visitors, the park was as busy as it had ever been leading up to the event. Abner tried not to resent the added chaos because it was an honor to his son, but it sometimes seemed like their gratitude only made the job they were expected to do much harder. Oh, well, he thought it will soon be over. Jack hardly had time to think about the event. He was so busy keeping all of the increased visitors safe on the trails of the mountain. Finally, the night of the event arrived. The maintenance shed slash banquet hall was filling with people and the smell of delicious food was wafting out of the building that had been remodeled into a kitchen. VIPs began arriving along with the founders of the order. They mingled with the guests and enjoyed the appetizers being circulated by the professional wait staff brought in for the night. Seating, except for the head table, was on a first-come, first-served basis. And even though it was still a little while before the meal would start, guests began hovering about their prospective seats staking a claim to the good seats close to the stage. Never before had so much finery been seen this far up the mountain. Guests were wearing their very best clothes in honor of their hero. Tuxedos and evening gowns marked the wealthiest of the guests, while others of more modest means made sure they wore their best they could afford. Even the organizers had to admit how surprised they were by the turnout for the evening. 
It would be a real tribute to someone who certainly deserved it. They could just imagine how honored the young man would be when he arrived. The problem was, no one could find Jack. The caterer was getting concerned, knowing that the quality of the food would diminish if the meal was delayed. But the organizers insisted that they couldn't start the meal without the guest of honor. The guests were getting restless, and as people got tired of hovering around their coveted seats close to the stage, they would wander away only to find their good seats had been taken by others. Some relinquished their positions reluctantly, while others sought out the organizers requesting a policy about saving seats. But the organizers were too busy trying to pacify the head caterer, who was sure the meal would be wrecked if they waited longer. The appetizers had been finished long ago, and people were growing hungry. Finally, someone found out why there was a wait. A family who had gone out onto the mountain for the day had not returned when expected, and Jack had gone out to find them. Now, the crowd began to polarize. One contingent was sure that the last thing a thoughtful young man like Jack would want was to keep a crowd of hungry people waiting. They were in favor of starting the meal. Another contingent thought that a meal to honor Jack should be willing to wait for his return. The chef thought only about how his masterpiece was being ruined by the self-centeredness of the guest of honor. Others were more understanding and argued that since they all had been in the same situation, they could hardly begrudge Jack his journey into the mountain to save other lost people. Only six people got up from their seats and quietly made their way out of the hall. They found their way up to the ranger's house and asked Katie if they could help. Lacking flashlights for all, she offered some lanterns and dug up several old pairs of shoes for some who needed better footwear. She assigned them sectors of the park to search and reminded them how to navigate from the beacon. the factions in the banquet hall became more pronounced and the chef walked out saying he wanted to be far away when the meal was served. It was wrecked and he wanted it clear that it wasn't his fault. The faction in favor of eating right away grew as hunger became a bigger issue and the organized were almost ready to give in when a rumor spread through the hall that the lost family had been found. It still seemed to take forever for Jack and his father to come to the hall. They were welcomed by the assembled crowd, and seeing them in their sturdy outdoor clothes somehow seemed appropriate in the midst of the finery around them. These were men of the mountains who made it their business to save the lost. They were seated at the head table, and the various dignitaries began abbreviated versions of their speeches. While the program went on, a small group of a half dozen people came into the hall. They looked around and found that almost all of the seats had been filled. The head waiter immediately recognized another problem on this disastrous night. These late arrivals were in no way dressed for the banquet, 
Their clothes were dirty and torn, and several of the people had clunky boots on which matched the condition of their clothes, but not the style. It was as if they had put on their best clothes then worn them to work for a week. The head waiter didn't know whether he dared send them away, but at least he could get them a table away from the rest of the crowd. He hurried over and offered to set up a table for them before they started making their way to the various empty seats among the better-dressed guests. Two shaky card tables were found and quickly set with whatever dishes could be located. Meanwhile, on the stage, the speeches were wrapping up and it was finally time to serve the meal. The final act of honor planned for the evening was in the serving of the head table. Two of the key organizers, along with the mayor and a state legislator, were scheduled to serve Jack. The men went to join the procession which would bring the guest of honor his supper and start the long-awaited meal. The last speaker finished his brief message and called for a round of applause for their hero. Jack rose from his seat and looked out at the crowd. The applause diminished and the hall fell silent. The crowd waited breathlessly for their hero to speak. At first, they thought he was speechless, overawed by the gratitude which prompted the evening. But as they watched, it seemed more like he was looking for someone in particular in the crowded hall. Finally, he fixed his eyes on the two decrepit card tables. He motioned to the men carrying the food for the head table to follow him and wound his way through the crowd and sat down with the tattered guests who had joined him on the search. Think for a, a moment. Which group does your expression of gratitude resemble? Have noble aims demanding your tireless effort clouded the reality that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost? Is it time for you to leave the banquet to search in the wilderness. You may find a fellowship on the mountain you've never felt at the table. We are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if it so be that we suffer with him the Apostle Paul. I hope you enjoyed the story today. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Happy trails.